Welcome back to the Franchise Festival podcast, where we go in-depth with noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. For Season 2, we're covering the evolution of Capcom's Resident Evil. You can find us online at FranchiseFestivalPodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Franchise underscore Fest. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes, or consider funding us at Patreon.com slash FranchiseFestival. Patrons, like our first supporter, Cheetah will get shouted out on the show and get access to bonus episodes covering spin-offs and other topics. Our last bonus episode at the time of recording is on Resident Evil Gaiden, so if you want to find out about the series' first foray into Zombies on a Boat, get yourself over to Patreon. As ever, we are your hosts, Chris, Spencer, Hamilton, and we're joined today by a special guest, Namu. Yeah, could you uh, tell listeners a bit about yourself? So I go by Supernamu on most social media platforms. I'm a Twitch streamer, been streaming, uh, I think, for like three years-ish now. Started on YouTube, wow. moved to uh, Twitch when uh, YouTube showed it was a little difficult to uh, branch out there. Um, but yeah, started out as a uh, platformer uh, streamer. I played a lot of Jack and Dexter. And after I beat that, I started moving to other categories like Fortnite and um, then I was like, well, you know, I really, really love JRPG, so let me start playing that as well and hit it off from there. Yeah, you um, do cosplay as well, right? I think I recall seeing... Did you do a, a Cloud Strife cosplay? Yeah, I didn't take any pictures, but I did a TikTok of uh, Cloud Strife not too long ago. I, I've been seeing coming up on the social media, particularly the uh, like the Phoenix Wright uh, TikToks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, those are really good. Yeah, I, um, you know, I really like cosplay, and I've taken pictures and everything, but I wanted to try, you know, try out TikTok. So going through that, you know, I would sit down and, like, just go through TikToks over TikTok over TikTok just for hours, just being entertained by everyone else's. So I was like, you know, these are some really, really cool TikToks that people do, and I want to try some of these dances or these transitions. So I was like, well, I do cosplays, too, so I'll try that. And it was really hard trying to get the hang of... Uh, doing transitions and everything, but I really, really enjoyed these last couple of uh, TikToks I've done. So, uh, what's your history with the Resident Evil series? Uh, what we we had put out the call um, to you and uh, a couple other folks uh, to see if uh, if people were interested in joining us to record an episode, and you had specifically requested Resident Evil Three. So. Um... My mom plays a lot of video games, and I used to sit down and watch her play video games all the time. And um, the very first horror game I ever saw her play was Resident Evil 2 back in uh, the late 90s. And, you know, yeah. horrified at the, you know, that very young age. But it was really entertaining to watch that happen. And um, I don't remember much of Resident Evil 2, but I have a lot of memories of Resident Evil 3 because my mom had the strategy guide. She had... Um, yes. Like the tips and tricks magazines with the info in there that may not have made it to the strategy guide. And I would just sit there, you know, as best as I can read out to her where she needed to go and such. And it was just um, such a fond memory. And it was really, really scary, but really, really fun. And even I think maybe like five or so years ago, I convinced her to play the game again. And I just sit there and uh -huh. watch her. And even... You know, in my 20s, I was still getting, like, really, really scared just watching her getting chased by Nemesis or yeah. get aggravated if she didn't go the right way or picked up the right ammo um, from the box or something. Yeah, they, for, for a game that, as we'll get into with the development, is, like, designed to be more action-oriented, 
this game is really scary. It is. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's so tense. It really is. I actually found Resident Evil 2 to be a bit more scary than this one, but I found this one to be a bit more thrilling. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. I don't know if there's a difference... I think we, we, we've we had this conversation about the difference between thriller and horror. It's so hard to define. But at least to me, this one had this constant uh, state of anxiety where it's just like, am I going to get attacked? Is something going to happen? Yeah, and I, I think that that reflects um, certainly our personal preferences on horror. I feel like this leans much more into the dread side of things, that you're mm-hmm. like, you're just constantly waiting for Nemesis to reappear. Oh, I completely agree. And that's my agree. thing. I love dread so much because I just, I don't know, I just feel so tense. And then when something happens, anything could happen. A dime could drop on the floor and I'm like, oh God, it's a dime, <laughs> shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the moments that like really gets my anxiety going through the roof is when you know, you have the normal music playing, and when you go to the next room, it's gone. Uh-huh. And yeah. it's just, you hear, like, that, that heartbeat and just the the drummer and all that stuff, and it's just like, oh, God. Oh, God. He's 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 going to be busting through something real soon. I'm going to be hearing him, yes. mm-hmm. you know, yell out stars any room now. It's yeah, it's brilliant. like the most sinister yeah. Kool-Aid man in the world. It's such a brilliant stylistic choice when horror decides to do that, where they just cut out the music. And I really yes. feel they can only do that super well in video games. They can do it in movies, I suppose. Usually they just try to cut down the background noise or you hear less pipes going or, you know, things that they want to kind of make the scene more tense. Uh, but in video games, you can really capture that super well because that's the point of having the background music. Because second you cut it off, you're just like, wow, I'm going to die. This is it. <laughs> yeah. I shudder to think what flavor Kool-Aid Nemesis produces. <laughs> I don't like this. It's probably like grape because, I, you know, his tentacles, like they have like that, that purple like shade to it. Yeah. And whenever like, you know, he oh. shoots out anything, it's like kind of like purple gush coming from him. And I think like grape would be the perfect color. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say grape because grape tends to be the worst flavor. Well, that too. But... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, as ever, we are uh, sourcing a lot of this development information from Alex Anuel's Itchy Tasty. Uh, But also, there are a couple of really great interviews that inform this. Uh, One with writer Yasuhisa Kawamura by the Project Umbrella website, and another one with the same writer by Eurogamer some years back. Uh, He provided quite a bit of insight into the tangled mess that is the development of Resident Evil 3. So uh, there were three games in the pipeline in mid-1998. The first of these was a planned Resident Evil 3, or Biohazard 3, by Hideki Kamiya, the director of Resident Evil 2. They were also working on Resident Evil Code Veronica, which was a non-numbered core series entry that was being designed for the Dreamcast. The final of the three games being made concurrently was a planned spin-off for the PlayStation, alternately called Biohazard 1.9, Biohazard 1.9 slash 2.1, for reasons that we'll get into later, and Biohazard Gaiden, which is not related to Resident Evil Gaiden. Uh, Gaiden, of course, just means side story. 
This third prototype was being directed by the designer of Resident Evil 2's fourth survivor mode, a man by the name of Kazuhiro Aoyama. Worth noting, he was also the systems planner for the other mainline Resident Evil games, so he was responsible for tweaking and balancing things like zombie health, bullet damage, etc. Oh, good call. Yeah, that, that makes sense for how systems-oriented this game is. So Kamiya's version was going to be even more action-packed than Resident Evil 2, since uh, Kamiya, of course, famously is a big action fan and, and would go on to create Devil May Cry and Bayonetta and so forth. But Capcom wanted that to really make a splash when it hit, and so his version got moved to the PlayStation 2 hardware uh, as soon as Sony announced it, which left a gap in the schedule in 1999. Series producer Yoshiki Okamoto told Biohazard Gaiden director Aoyama that his spin-off project was going to be upgraded to the status of a core series entry, uh, which provoked just a ton of heartburn all across the uh, like the, the Capcom production studios. The decision to actually upgrade this as a core entry truly frustrated Shinji Mikami uh, to the point mm-hmm. where he actually threatened to leave the company. Um, now, he did decide to stay, uh, but this just kind of goes to show that there's a lot of things happening at Capcom right now that was just immensely frustrating and complicated. Yeah, very stressful working environment there in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So the original vision of Biohazard Gaiden before it became Resident Evil 3 was a new character trying to escape the infected Raccoon City uh, during the events leading up to Resident Evil 2. This got changed at the time that the, the project transitioned to being Resident Evil 3 to feature Jill Valentine as the protagonist instead, uh, bringing her back from Resident Evil 1. The writer of Resident Evil 3, Yasuhisa Kawamura, was hired in August 1998 to work on Mikami's Dino Crisis before being moved to Resident Evil 3. So Kawamura created the uh, Umbrella Special Forces unit, the branching live selection paths where the player is able to choose one of two different options, and Resident Evil 3's most notable contribution to the series, Nemesis. Kawamura was more into action. So uh, when he was being interviewed by Capcom, I really like this little detail. He told Capcom that he wanted to make an Exorcist-themed Resident Evil game or a Yakuza-themed Resident Evil with katana swords, uh, which is just very silly to imagine. A couple other ideas that were abandoned due to the financial and time constraints include a bonus mode where you would have played as the zombified Brad Vickers, as well as a portion of the plot where Jill would have crossed paths with Claire, Leon, and Annette in the lab from Resident Evil 2. Resident Evil 3's budget was initially tiny. It didn't allow for CG cutscenes or voice acting, but that was increased when it transitioned from being a spin-off to a core series entry. The team was only given two months during mid-1999 to upgrade the presentation to give it kind of the, the veneer of a AAA title. So uh, this is the period in which cutscenes and voice acting were added. And amazingly, this tiny two-month time frame is when the team extended the plot from ending at the Raccoon City clock tower to including things like uh, the hospital and the park and the dead factory. All of those were added during this little crunch period. The game was released in Japan 
as Biohazard 3 The Last Escape on September 22nd, 1999. And it was then followed in North America and Europe in November 1999 and February 2000, respectively. Overseas, it was retitled Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, which is where fans took the uh, name of the monster character from. This delay was due to Capcom not wanting to cannibalize Dino Crisis sales in the West. Uh, Listeners might remember that uh, Resident Evil games tended to release pretty concurrently in Japan and overseas, uh, but in this case, there was a delay. I think they're just like, you know what, as long as it breaks one million, we're fine. (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember if it was the producer or someone else that said that, and I can look that up, but I do remember reading that they're just like, you know what, just put it out. Whatever we have, we have. It'll probably break a million. It'll be fine. And they just threw it out there, and it made a lot more money than they thought. They're just like, well, good. Okay, that works. I know Mikami was really unhappy about the game, and Aoyama, the director, to this day, has this very kind of humble approach to it, where um, he remains kind of uncertain whether it should have been called Resident Evil 3, uh, I guess because he was so involved with it and always thought of it as a spinoff. But the production values on this are very high. Like, you can't really tell that 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 polish was added just at the last minute, because frankly, this looks better by leaps and bounds than Resident Evil 1 and 2, I think. You know, I don't think anybody at Capcom was too thrilled with this, despite its commercial success, because you mentioned both Mikami and uh, Aoyama were kind of disappointed in it. And I believe the extra budget that was given to upgrade this to a mainline Resident Evil was Mm -hmm. taken from uh, Kamiya's budget for the game he was working on. So I'm sure he wasn't too thrilled about that himself. Oh, wow. I didn't even catch that detail. Yeah, I've never heard him talk about Resident Evil 3. Uh, So yeah, maybe maybe he has uh, something of a grudge against it. I don't know. And as we'll find out in uh, future episodes of the show, Kamiya's project would end up being uh, bedeviled by some other problems as it went along. Um, Did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that, Namu, before we move on? Um, When you had mentioned that the game had like a different ending where it was supposed to originally end by the clock tower. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting because there is a cutscene um, where you fight Nemesis in the courtyard. Um, yeah. Jill runs out and she sees a helicopter and uh, Nemesis shoots it down with the rocket launcher. I could see that being like, I guess that could have been like the original ending because, you know, that was, you know, an actual cutscene and... Uh, I don't know if they was going to have the actual boss fight there or was that actually supposed to be like the helicopter that she would get in and get rescued by. But I find that really, really interesting. Like, I think that it would have really, you know, shortened the game, but I, I could see that actually being an ending right there. I think you're right about that. I think the helicopter probably would have just taken the main character away at that point uh, in the original build of the game. This follows the same general control scheme of the first two, 
you got mm-hmm. your tank controls, pre-rendered backgrounds. There's a few tuning things that are different here. For one, you have faster run speed, and I believe zombies have a faster turn speed as well. Yeah. They can kind of run at you, too, mm-hmm. sometimes. They can. They go aggro really, really quick, depending on, um, I guess, RNG. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you can't ever tell. For my money, one of the most important mechanical additions to this that's still present even in the first-person Resident Evil games is a 180-degree quick turn. Yeah. Uh, no longer do you have to slowly wait for your character to turn in a circle to run the opposite direction. You can just hit back and run, and you will kind of turn on your heels and face the other way. It's very useful. Thank goodness. This also adds environmental... Uh, traps isn't the right word. In, in, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're traps if you stand too close to them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, such as exploding barrels. There's these red boxes on the wall that explode when you shoot them. I'm not sure what those are supposed to read as. They kind of just look like dynamite on the... Well, I'll tell you what they look like. They look like handgun ammo (laughs) strapped to the wall. I accidentally game-overed myself once because I was trying to interact (laughs) with it, thinking it was supposed to be something I could grab. Because interactable objects in this, the sprites are very clearly distinct from the pre-rendered backgrounds. Right. So this thing on the wall was very clearly something I could interact with. And when I couldn't grab it, I tried shooting it, and I killed myself. Oh, Spencer. Yeah. It's just dynamite strapped to the wall for some reason, I guess. I don't know. And that's not the only uh, kind of technical hiccup that you hit with these uh, environmental details, right? Uh, I think uh, I think you noted in the Discord that I had sabotaged you. Oh, yeah. So I was playing this on a Vita, which only has uh, one shoulder button on each side. And the way that you differentiate your aim between an enemy and an environmental object is whether or not you ready your weapon with R1 or R2. So I asked Chris, how important is it for this to aim at environmental objects? And he said, oh, it's not a big deal at all. You can easily get through the whole game without doing that. Don't even bother binding it to anything. (laughs) Not only is it extremely important for like the moment-to-moment encounters, there is a boss fight at the end where it is pretty much mandatory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this is what happens when I give advice before playing the game for the first time in like five years. It's okay. I say I... uh, compromised my own run of this plenty through my own stubbornness and poor decision making so just another <laughs> another log on the fire i guess mm-hmm. this also introduces a dodge system i don't know how much we want to get into this here and how much we want to talk about it in final impressions but boy howdy is the dodge system kind of a mixed bag yeah i think this is a, as good a place as any to talk about this yeah so ostensibly the way this is supposed to work is while you are aiming if you press the action button or the fire button during a certain point in an enemy's enemy's attack cycle, it will automatically dodge out of the way of that attack. Mm-hmm. It's kind of finicky. Uh, there were I, I generally found myself just mashing the shoot button and hoping it would work because there's no real protections in place to prevent you from just mashing it to constantly dodge one attack after another. Yeah. So it didn't feel like there was much finesse to it. It was also sometimes frustrating, particularly when like fighting the Cerberi. Because I would be trying to shoot them when they get close to me because they get staggered <laughs> out of attacks with one bullet, but it would right. just keep dodging instead. And some the dodge animation that Jill does is random. Mm-hmm. So if it was an alleyway where I had all the you know enemies kind of lined up, sometimes it would dodge in a way that would now sandwich me between two enemies, and then I would just get killed when I really just wanted to shoot. Most of my hunter deaths were attributed to the dodge mechanic because I, I would just keep spinning between hunters and they'd eventually hack me down. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes I would be in a really bad position and the dodge would save me, but it always felt like I had no control over whether or not the dodge was going to be helpful or harmful. And that's not what you want in a system. It's also weirdly ineffective against Nemesis. Mm Mm-hmm. Because at the start, I thought the key to beating him consistently was going to be to master the dodge mechanic. But the dodges do not give you iframes. They just move you out of the way of an attack. And since the way it moves you is random, you can get into situations where you can dodge, but still get hit by the attack anyway. Yeah, I try to not rely on it at all. Because I'm really, really bad at timing stuff. Same. And um, I just, I'm the type of person where I don't, I don't dodge, I don't block, I just go straight in. So if I get hit, I get hit, and I just, yeah. you know, I'll cry about it later. But it's it never happened when I wanted to, and it will happen in the most inconvenient times. And I'm like, I'm not I'm not trying to dodge, I'm just trying to shoot you. You just happen to be right here. And it's just, it, it's, it was really aggravating to the point that I just, I didn't rely on it at all, to be honest, to get through the game. I also found it immensely frustrating to even try. Yeah. Also, just didn't feel it was needed. I mean, I get it. I get trying to introduce new stuff. But especially with, like, tank controls. Like, me and tank controls already have a very complicated relationship. So adding dodging, uh, dodge mechanic with that kind of uh, tank controls, I was just like, no, give me one thing that I find frustrating, please. (laughs) Not three. Yeah, I think it would have been nice if this was mapped to a specific button. Uh, Like, L2 is more or less unused on the controller. It just brings up your map. So it would have been nice to have the dodge mapped to L2, though maybe it would have given the player too much mobility. But it seems like a number of the boss fights in this are pretty geared around a higher degree of mobility than the game easily gives you access to. Mm-hmm. Like, I got killed by Nemesis and uh, the, the Gravedigger quite a bit in this. And I think if my uh, if I had had access to a dodge, I would have survived much better. Yeah, Nemesis, he he will run after you. Mm-hmm. After, he'll walk mm-hmm. and he'll swing a, like a couple of times and then he'll run and swing and then, you know, he'll repeat that pattern over and over again. And it can get really frustrating because when she'll shoot, depending on the weapon, it could be a slow fire rate too. So, right. you know, you're in the middle of the animation of her putting the gun down and he's running at you. And mobility is really, really important in this game. And it was unfortunate that the dodge mechanic didn't do well when it came to Nemesis and Gravedigger that was mentioned. Yeah, agreed. We had mentioned in the Resident Evil 1 episode that the reason why hunters in that game were particularly frustrating was because it didn't feel like the player had the defensive verb set to deal with the high mobility of those enemies. So with the return of hunters and Nemesis, who is also a high mobility enemy, I think on paper it makes sense to implement this system. It just needed to have, I mean, I disagree with the idea that giving you know more control over the dodge would have made it too easy. I think it was necessary because as is, dodging just feels like a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's uh, another new system in the form of gunpowder mixing. Uh, another system that has carried forward into uh, more recent games in the franchise. Mm-hmm. This gives the player a little more control over how ammo is distributed uh, you will find gunpowders that you can mix together and based on the combination of uh, the powders you can produce new types of ammunition for yourself yeah there's a subsystem to this that i did not encounter and that is once you mix a type of gunpowder enough times you will start 
being prompted to make enhanced ammunition instead. And that gives you fewer bullets per gunpowder, but the ammunition itself is more powerful. So that's another layer of player control uh, in the resource management, which I like. I'm always an advocate for giving players options. There's also a risk-reward element in mm. terms of how uh, long you want to try to squirrel away your gunpowder. Because if you mix multiples of the same type together, it will produce... So, for example, gunpowder B you can use with a reloading tool to make shotgun shells. If you mix mm. two Bs together, you get gunpowder BB. And if you use that with the reloading tool, you get more shotgun shells than you would if you had reloaded two B gunpowders individually. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. you are incentivized to hold on to these as long as possible and combine them into larger quantities uh, for the sake of being more efficient. But mm -hmm. if you are more desperate for ammo for a particular gun at any given point, you also have the option to do it right then and there. And I like that kind of balance. Yeah, and there's so many more zombies and enemies in this, just pound for pound, than in previous Resident Evil games, that you're going to want as much ammunition as possible. This might be a little nitpicky. I would like the interface for it to be a little nicer, I think, mm -hmm. because the reloading tool that you use to make the bullets takes up an inventory slot. I think you'd have to be absolutely mad to carry various gunpowders and the reloading tool with you when you're mm -hmm. running around the city to make ammo on the fly. So it's something. It's just another object that you have to move in and out of your safe box over and over in the save room, and it just becomes sort of an annoying menu tax to craft this. I don't know if I have a better alternative for that. Maybe if there was a shell reloader that acted as a physical object in the save room that you could just interact with and just give you one less object you had to constantly pull in and out of the box. It's the kind of thing that in modern games, uh, you've got like a crafting table, like in what, like The Last of Us or, um, or, or things like that. It really obviates that inconvenience. But uh, this still seemed to be kind of pioneering some of these crafting mechanics in a survival horror setting, so I'm not surprised that it's a little undercooked. As I think we mentioned, there are not multiple campaigns in this, like we saw in mm -hmm. 1 and 2. You have your right. one playthrough as Jill. But what this adds is the live selection branching path. There are various points throughout the game where you are given uh, two options on how to proceed forward or deal with some obstacle, usually nemesis, that's coming at you. Mm -hmm. And depending on your choices that can result in you moving forward through a different path, entering into a new area uh, through a different room or a different angle, which slightly changes the uh, kind of order of operations that you have to adhere to to get through the area, and it yeah. can result in you receiving different resources at various points. I think the very first one that you encounter, the live selection, is uh, one of the uh, scariest because... You know, this is when you first encounter Nemesis, you know, it's either a fight or into the police station. And of course, if you don't fight, then you miss out on getting mm -hmm. uh, the eagle parts for uh, the upgraded pistol. But mm -hmm. if you do fight him, that's, you know, you might not have the ammo to survive this fight. Or if you don't make the decision at all, he attacks you and you're weakened from the beginning of the fight. And it's a, it's a difficult decision in that right. one. You miss out on the weapon parts or you survive. <laughs> and fight is is rough almost every time that i start a new save file on resident evil 3 i try to fight nemesis at that point and i fail 90 percent of the time like it's it's so hard to fight nemesis when all you have is the pistol and the shotgun but it's so beneficial if you can pull it off 
besides the the parts to get the new pistol and the new shotgun, you also get the first aid box. So if you know you're, you're low on health from fighting him so much, you know you get this first aid box that has three first aid kits in it as well. And yeah. that's gonna be, I think you get them twice. So that's like up to six, you know, free first aid uh, sprays, and that could be really beneficial too for late game Resident Evil. The next bullet on here is civilians on the streets of Raccoon City getting eaten. I think you have to return at certain times in order to hear these civilians being eaten and screaming for their death. Yeah, it's it's a really good bit of atmospheric storytelling, I feel like. You can never prevent their deaths, and it's very hard to catch sight of them. I think, like you said, if you um, if you just happen to go through the right screens at the right time, you can sometimes see them running in the distance. Um, but by the time you can get close to them, they've run off screen and have been eaten by zombies or run through a door. I mean, this was actually done on purpose, but it was also mm-hmm. kind of kiboshed a tiny bit because that's what Mikami wanted out of this game. He wanted to be kind of an indie title, quote unquote. He wanted to be a bit mm-hmm. more actiony, but he also really wanted to show just the chaos that was happening in the city. Yeah. Which would take away from the claustrophobia of what Resident Evil kind of is or had been. Yeah. Um, and there's actually supposed to be more of that, of like, you should actually like see people getting mowed down or right. at least like getting attacked by zombies and stuff like that. But that was, again, kind of uh, covered over a little bit when um, the supervising producer was just like, eh, let, let's cut that, da- uh, that down a bit and uh, focus on other aspects. Yeah, let's let's crank this game out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is pure speculation on my part. But do you think Camille was bitter at all about this? Because we know he wanted to make a more action-oriented game because he doesn't like horror. And Shinji Mikami kind of, you know, steered him back toward the horror side of things, much to his chagrin. And now for Resident Evil 3, when Aoyama's in charge, everyone's like, oh, yeah, make it as action-y as you want. Action's great. The kids will love it. <laughs> yeah, you almost get the impression that there was this kind of inexorable pull on the Resident Evil series to move towards action. And Kamiya just happened to be aware of it before anybody else was. Mm-hmm. Like... Pretty much from Resident Evil 2 on, it's like more action, more action until you get to Resident Evil 7. Moving on, we've got a couple new weapons and a new ammo type here. The assault rifle, this is really more new in form than function. Mm-hmm. This is not dissimilar from the fully automatic weapons in 1 and 2. Yeah. Uh, the damage per bullet is relatively low. I think it's fairly in line with the handgun, but the rate of fire is much higher. And you fire it just by holding the button instead of having to repeatedly tap. Yeah, I I really like the assault rifle in this for taking out hunters because it staggers them, but it's darn near useless for fighting Nemesis. Uh, By default, you only get this uh, as Carlos in the standard hard game. There's a section when you play as him, which we'll get to, uh, and he has a separate inventory from Jill. You start with the assault rifle if you play through on easy mode. Uh, and you can also unlock an assault rifle through the Mercenaries minigame, which we'll cover shortly, uh, that will carry over into the main game. In hard mode, you can get the assault rifle as Jill during one of the many times that you fight Nemesis. I think it's like seventh time or something. Really? He will drop. Yes, he will drop it. Oh, wow. I've never gotten that. Like, I think you need to, like, fight him each and every time and, like, make sure, like, he's not... Like, he's down, down, not, like, down, and he'll get up, like, a couple seconds later. Like, you need to make sure he's unconscious. And it's, I think it's, uh... Right, exactly. It happens after uh, Carlos's section, like, one of the one or two times afterwards that you fight him immediately as Jill, you can get the assault rifle. 
the uh, the mine thrower is the next uh, new weapon in this game. It's grabbed in the clock tower from a dead mercenary on the ground and shoots timed mines that attach to enemies and then explode. It reminds me a lot of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, I think it's Crash Man's power from Mega Man 2. I think you're right, yes. Yeah. Um, if Jill is too close to the mines, they'll damage her, so you have to be careful using it, especially with enemies like Nemesis that approach you. It is kind of hamstrung by the fact that it can't be reloaded until it's fully emptied. So, um, you know, you need to use every mine in it before loading it up with a new quote-unquote clip of mines. You also don't come across the animals at all until you pick up the mine door. No kidding. I think, I'm not sure if it's random, but you usually find mine door ammo in the uh, clock tower itself at the very, very top uh, where the puzzles are later on in the game. There is right. ammo there, but I think it will not appear until you pick up the mine door. And also, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the mind door does not show up in easy mode. It does not. Yeah, it's, I guess there's a logic to that, right? Because it's kind of like a technical type of weapon that if you're playing through the game on easy mode, maybe it assumes that you don't want the hassle of dealing with a weapon that can hurt you. How about the freeze rounds? Uh, we get a new variant of grenade for the grenade launcher. Mm -hmm. There's a specific situation where you find these. Uh, there's a scene where you can either... Um, we have the option to jump out of a train car, and if you do so, there will be a scene where Carlos gives you some of these. Otherwise, I think the only way to obtain the freeze rounds is through crafting them with gunpowders. Yeah. Uh, these will slow enemies. It'll actually freeze them, and then you can shatter them by following up with normal bullets. No way! I only ever used these on Nemesis, so I never got to see that. They are particularly effective against Nemesis, so you cannot be blamed for doing that. Uh, though uh, he can dodge out of the way of grenades. It's kind of a drag. Yeah. Uh, Nemesis's dodge mechanic is much more effective than Jill's. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Yeah. This isn't Nemesis's first rodeo. <laughs> Mercenary's Operation Mad Jackal. <laughs> is I always forget it has a legitimate name. <laughs> uh, this is a short scenario where you get to pick one of the three... Uh, umbrella mercenaries that you encounter in the main game mm -hmm. uh, carlos nikolai or mikhail the goal here is to reach a specific point on the map within a time limit with a predefined loadout yeah i kept trying to do this with carlos because i'm stubborn is the starting and ending point the same regardless of which character you choose yeah i'm i'm sorry you yeah. went with carlos on this because the game acts like carlos is like the the starting one to choose like he's the He's the one who you spend the most time with in the single-player campaign, as opposed to Mikhail, who gets killed in the single-player campaign pretty quickly, and Nikolai, who's the bad guy. So it stands to reason you would play as Carlos, but his run here is much harder than Mikhail. And Mikhail has, like, options for AoE, right? Or area of effect damage? Yeah, he's got, like, a shotgun. Uh, Mikhail even has a rocket launcher with, like, eight rockets in it. Oh, wow. He also has his magnum. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned area damage is one of the mechanics of this is obviously you're under a very strict time limit, so you want to try to move quickly, but I don't believe you have enough time to reach the destination just by, you know, beelining for it. No. You have to stop and kill enemies because each enemy that you kill adds time onto your timer. Additionally, there are checkpoints you can reach that uh, give you more time as well. So it's Oh, a I didn't realize that. 
I didn't find any. They seem kind of out of the way. The only one I actually came across was in the restaurant. Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, I do remember those from playing this approximately two bazillion times back when it was the only PlayStation game that I owned. I do really like this game mode. As much as I struggled with it, I really like the idea of constantly having to evaluate which encounters are more efficient to avoid and which encounters you need to specifically seek out in order to put more time on your clock. Mm -hmm. And the problem I mentioned with Carlos is just a regular old vanilla zombie only adds three seconds to your clock. And using the um, upgraded pistol or assault rifle, I mean, it takes like five bullets and sometimes they get back up. So you really don't net much time on a normal zombie. If you have something that can take out multiple with one shot, then it becomes a much more appealing proposition to stop and uh, fight big groups of them. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more beneficial. Yeah, uh, I don't really you... know how you finish this as Nikolai. Um, I, I've barely ever even tried as him, and I usually... I, I'm not sure I've ever made it to the end as him. He just gets the knife and something else, right? Yeah. Just a regular um, pistol, I think. Jeez. At the end, whether you complete it or not, you are awarded some money based on the enemies that you killed and the time that you finished it if you finish it Mm -hmm. and then you can spend that money to unlock special uh, weapons in the main game with infinite ammunition yeah you can either get an assault rifle a gatling gun or the top tier reward just gives you infinite ammo with every gun yeah the rewards for this are really great it makes the replay um you know viability really really high for the main game yeah, yeah, I I spent so much time on this when I was young because um, you can just kind of like play a run and jump right back into it. I wish it was a little quicker to jump back into than um, than it is. Uh, I think in a modern game it would it would load a lot quicker and there'd be fewer menu screens and so forth. But um, it's just so much fun. It's it feels almost like a classic Capcom arcade game. I think one of the worst. Uh games i guess mercenary games i ever did i think i was playing as carlos and mm-hmm. i was in the y-shape corridor uh alleyway that's in the city and yeah. i don't remember what direction i needed to head in but from both doors two nemesis came at me <laughs> and at the time i didn't know that that was a possibility i thought it was some sort of glitch and i freaked out they they murdered me in that hallway and it's it was horrifying because i'm already afraid of nemesis and he's chased me down a couple of alleyways previously but just to see two of them come at my direction from both ways there's there's nothing i could do i just had to i had to take the l on that one (laughs) one of the cool easter eggs that i found from uh researching this game is that if you um if you get one of the two nemesises in that room nemesis if you get one of the two nemeses in that room to hit the other one, it will flag it as an enemy, and so the two nemeses will fight each other. Oh, that's cool. Hmm. So uh, the monsters that appear in Resident Evil 3, um, 
are quite different from Resident Evil 2. There's a, you know, you have to stand the zombies that which appeared in the previous one, so that's normal. Right. The hunters, they've, they've appeared before, but there's some new ones, like the brain suckers or uh, the grave digger, which he is considered just kind of a regular enemy because he does disappear. I, you know, I consider it a boss fight, but some others consider him just an, just an enemy. Um, these enemies, I feel like they're way more horrifying. I don't know, it's because... Yeah. <laughs> they they improved uh from you know Resident Evil Two to this one, so it's just like, uh you know I get shivers when I come across them. Like I think it's the brain suckers that you encounter in like a maintenance area in the city, and yep, like if you're running from it, it will get on its hind legs and start running after you, and it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever encountered <laughs> in any video game. I agree so much. Like, up until this point, I feel like the spiders were the creepiest Resident Evil enemy, but I think the Drain Demos and the Brain Suckers kind of take their, uh, take their place in this one. That I-, I gather the development material suggests that they're based on fleas, and, um, you know, they, they do jump a bit, but it's that it's that rearing up and walking at you that's just something about the animation for that is just pitch perfect. Yeah, a simple, you know, two rounds of a shotgun should do it justice, but they're just, they're fast and they crawl on the walls. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It can get really, really uh, hard to deal with because um, sometimes you encounter them in the really, really small hallways. Um, and yep. it's usually like two, at least, in the room. Could anybody tell the difference between the Drain Demos and the Brain Sucker? Like, these are classified as two different enemies. And I gather that I encountered both of them on my playthrough, but I thought they were all Drain Demos. I couldn't even tell the difference between these and the Chimeras, so... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They have different artwork for it, though, so... They are different. Yeah, they do. Oh, one looks more red and one looks more green. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if, like, you encounter the Drain Demos earlier and the Brain Suckers later, or what the deal is, but yeah, it, they're they're very similar. From what I gather, there's, like, in most locations that you bump into one or the other, there's a 50% chance it's the other. Like, it's just right. random, I think. So you might not even know. You might have bumped into Brain Suckers the entire time, or it might have been Drain Demos the entire time. you Unless you like really paying attention, you might not even realize because mm. they all, I think, appear in the same areas. Yeah, and I think it's something that we didn't cover earlier, but um, enemy attacks in this can be somewhat random. So uh, on subsequent playthroughs, this um, this kind of stands in for where you did the the different A and B scenarios in Resident Evil Two, and you might get surprised by a different enemy that you weren't expecting. In this, every time you play, uh, certain areas are randomized, which is pretty cool and scary. How about the Hunter Gamma, Namu? I think that's an entirely new enemy. Yeah, the uh, they're basically frogs, gigantic frogs. <laughs> <laughs> really, really creepy. You encountered them, um, I think, in the, the basement of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the other hunters, you know, just shoot them instantly. It's like the shotgun, it should be enough, but... Uh, they're quite grotesque looking. Very squishy. <laughs> yes. And it's just, uh, it's horrifying to appear. And I think uh, you also have a chance of uh, bumping into them in the park instead of zombies. Yep. Like the park area, there's uh, a really, really random area. You can get either the leeches, you can get zombie dogs, you can get zombies, or you can get these uh, hunter gammas. And uh, you always want to at least hope for the leeches because they're slow and 
I think they poison, but it's not as much of an issue compared to gigantic frogs jumping after you. Yeah, I, I really like these enemies, and it's a little sad. I don't think they ever turn up again in a Resident Evil game. There's kind of another version of them in the remake of... Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't, I'm not sure if they're called the same thing, but they, they're they encountered in the sewers in that one, and they kind of have almost that aquatic frog look to them. Yeah, they're they're a lot cooler in the remake, I think, truth be told. I kind of dislike the Gamma Hunters, or the Hunter oh. Gammas, rather. Mm-hmm. I think the tuning on them is weird, because they uh, they have a really cool animation when they swallow you whole. Yeah. But I've had that trigger on me from yellow health, yellow mm-hmm. caution health, and that's, you know, the second highest of the four health states. So these things can ostensibly one-hit kill you from 75% health, Yeah, which seems a little much for a game that gives you limited saves and has kind of a, uh, I don't know, dying doesn't feel good in Resident Evil 3, and having something kill you from that high of health right away is not to my taste. Yeah, and you can get knocked down into yellow health from basically a single attack. So, you know, one of these, if you're if you're not quick on it, and like the other hunters, they usually attack in groups. You can uh, get knocked down into yellow health from one of them and then get eaten by the other. So I can see what you're saying on that. How many of you, uh, times have you guys like gotten your head decapitated from the hunter betas? <laughs> <laughs> so many times. <laughs> many times. A couple times, yeah. Just, if you're not fast enough or if you're not paying attention or if you didn't do the dodge correctly, that's just, that's it. Mm-hmm. And probably for most casual players, the last time they saved was like probably before the boss fight against nemesis as jill yeah it's very frustrating and i feel like they they're much more deadly and numerous in this than they were in resident evil one um like i in our resident evil one playthrough i think i played through that three times for the show and i didn't get decapitated by a hunter once and in this i got decapitated by a hunter maybe four or five times at least they're they're even introduced decapitating a zombie so they really want to show (laughs) off that that sweet, sweet insta-death mechanic, I guess. <laughs> Did you want to tell us about bosses, Nama? Sure. So uh, there's really two um, major bosses in this game. Mm-hmm. Well, three if you count Nikolai. Um, but Nemesis, Gravedigger, and Nikolai while he's in the helicopter. Yeah. And uh, Nemesis, he's the first major enemy you encounter very early on in the game. Right as soon as you get to the police department, when you get Mm -hmm. your first live selection, you either fight him or you run away. And this would be a very, very intimidating character because after uh, he'll walk towards you, throw a punch, he'll do that like one or two times, and then he'll run at you to throw a punch. And not knowing, you know, up until this point, you know, the only creatures that would run after you would be like the dogs. So up until this point, you know, you think you're fine. You can walk a couple steps do a quick turn and shoot him and no he's running after you while you're still in the animation and he'll knock you down and when he knocks you down to the floor jill takes a long time to get up from the floor yeah and it can be really you're like you're hitting all the buttons you're damaging your controller trying to get up yeah and you just see her flinching on screen and trying to move but you know the many times uh that you continue to get knocked down it takes longer and longer for her to get up till yep. you know you die and he also has an attack where he can shoot out like tentacles out of his arm or his shoulder to get you, which is a uh, very plot important later on for Jill right, when she right. gets actually struck by it. But um, 
when I think about Resident Evil 3 in the, what I find the most scary part in that game is when you're already past that encounter and you are in the raccoon police department and you're minding your business, you're doing these puzzles running around the, the department and everything, and mm-hmm. uh, then the music gone. And it's just nothing. Yeah. And it's just the very first time I didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> I was like, why is the music gone? And I'm watching my mother, you know, running around and you go downstairs and you walk past the window and he jumps through the window with a grenade launcher in his so good. arm. So Scared the crap out of me. Like to this day, I'm so traumatized at that scene because it's just horrifying to see this creature have a weapon that I would, you know, carry on my own later on in a game have it actually turned on me and it's just it's horrifying just this creature that's based off of the tyrant from the previous game aimed only to go after stars members yeah everything about nemesis is so good and what i always enjoyed is that um you never know when he's gonna show up like i mean you know the more Mm -hmm. you play you'll know the points where he will but just the fact that as you know your first time playing this after you go through him the first time either by running away to get to the next you know major story section or you actually knock them down um to get you know gun parts and such you know you think oh that's yeah. it i'll probably not encounter her again or if i do it'll be like an actual cut scene boss fight thing no this this monster will chase you you know throughout the game at random sections you'd be minding your business you go into mm-hmm. a room and he'll come running through burning window and you'll hear stars and you know if you don't have any ammo on you, you know, it's just, you gotta do your best. I think there's one particular one when you're trying to fix up all of the, uh, get all the items to fix up the train, and you get to a Y-section yeah. corridor, and he comes from the direction that you need to go in, and it's just like, oh my god, uh-huh. come on now. I don't have any ammo, I just come back from fighting off Gravedigger. It's just, it's, he comes at the most inconvenient parts, but that makes it so... Right. So fun at the same time. Yeah, and that that pursuit mechanic where he can follow you through doors totally breaks the logic of Resident Evil. Like up until this point, the closest they had was like the the tyrant or Mr. X in Resident Evil 2, but that was so scripted. Like he'd pop up and he couldn't really follow you from room to room. But in this, when Nemesis finds you, and it's not one of the the set-piece boss fights, he will track you down and try to kill you until you either get to the next story point or beat him. And it's just, it's terrifying because he's faster than you. He's got his catchphrase, uh, which I'll plug in here. Stars. I think out of all the Resident Evils I played, Nemesis probably be one of the more terrifying ones that actually got my anxiety going through the roof. Just... Mm-hmm. You know, just him running after you because he's so fast. He's so fast. If you are yeah. in the animation of anything between reloading or on the ground, it's just, you know, count that as a game over because <laughs> yep. the moment he either strikes you with the tentacles in the uh, courtyard boss fight or hits you with the rocket launcher, which, you know, that's a perfect time to try out your dodging. Good luck if you don't know how to do it then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's really... It's almost a 50-50 chance when fighting him if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and he ends up uh, sort of transforming as the game goes on. Uh, This was originally, the transformations were intended to be more dramatic, but due to the time crunch, they couldn't quite pull it off. So um, there are only a few like plot-critical moments where you uh, have to fight Nemesis, 
and defeat him. The first is at the clock tower, where uh, he infects Jill with the virus. The main mechanical wrinkle to that fight is that you can't see what your health is. Your health bar just says virus. The second plot-critical nemesis fight is where uh, his big trench coat gear has been burned away by acid or fire. I believe it's fire at the courtyard. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, the acid comes later. Um, But yeah, Jill has to fight him in uh, the factory and uh, shoot these, uh, what would you call it? Like acid vats to uh, burn him as he's walking around. And he gets a, a more powerful, like long distance attack at this point. I found this to be a pretty tough claustrophobic battle. Oh yeah, that one's really, really hard. Between the camera angles and the very, very small mm-hmm. corridor where those uh, the acid pumps are, to get him to you know stand in front of that in time, shooting that at the same time so he gets hit by the acid is that's a you know a really, really tough boss fight. And then you also have the time limit too. So yeah, and he's so much smarter than other bioweapons in the series. He'll actually back away from the acid if you shoot it before he's right in its path. Uh, so you have to be pretty judicious with your timing. The game uh, developers took pity on, I guess, casual <laughs> players. Because when you encounter Nemesis right before the courtyard fight, um, you encounter him at the top of the uh, clock tower. And mm-hmm. um, you have one of the live sections there to either shine the light or electrocute him. And I can't remember what happens when you use the lights, but if you electrocute him, that knocks him down. Of course, when he goes to the next room, he starts chasing you. But uh, you get a a first aid box from that one, and that could be really, really helpful for the courtyard boss fight. Because that's just three, you know, first aid sprays that you can have instantly. Yeah, I really like the uh, the moments where you can take him down and get his item without actually needing to fight him. Yeah. I think that happens in when you're in a restaurant at one point, you can toss a gas lamp at him and it'll blow him up and knock him down. And you can get, uh, I think at that point, you're usually early enough in the game that it's one of the pistol parts. The, um, the third plot critical Nemesis boss fight is the final encounter of the game where... Um, after being melted in acid, Nemesis returns as this large, blobby, kind of quasi-Lovecraftian monster that uh, crawls on four legs. He's pretty diminished in size when you first encounter him here because he's been you know, dissolved in the aforementioned acid. Yeah. It's hard to tell what exactly happens here because you have a model interacting with a pre-rendered background, and that, <laughs> True. in my opinion, doesn't work so well. But it looks to me there's a corpse of a uh, T-100 tyrant. Yeah. In the corner of that room. And I think the near-dead nemesis is devouring the corpse of the uh, the tyrant. And that's what causes him to mutate into this larger form. Yeah, I love that, the, the pre-rendered backgrounds at the end of this. Because it suggests this massive conflict that we never quite see. Uh, you've got, like, multiple types of tyrants and monsters all uh, kind of having been killed. And all of these... Uh, it's not clear if they're Umbrella Special Forces or U.S. military. Um, I read an interview with um, the writer of this game, and um, he was pretty cagey about whether it was Umbrella or the U.S. military, uh, because the interviewer was implying that it was the uh, the military, and the writer was saying, like, yeah, well, maybe. The way that you defeat this kind of super nemesis form is a mounted rail cannon with one of the funniest names in Resident Evil history. It is Paracelsus's Sword. I think that's kind of neat because Paracelsus was a, uh, he was a, 
oh, what was he? He was like an alchemist and a physician. The father of toxicology, he was one of the ones who kind of spearheaded the medical revolution of the Renaissance. Yeah, yep. Hmm. Yep, yeah, we have him to thank for modern medicine. So Umbrella was like, hey, we should we should uh, name our railgun after him, being a pharmaceutical company and all, that makes railguns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, ABC, you know, it follows, right? Until now, I didn't think of the larger implications of that existence, but I think it's funny this pharmaceutical company that makes bioweapons decided to dabble in conventional weaponry at the same time, I guess. I guess, uh, you know, for Umbrella, one weapon is uh, as good as another. Maybe making zombies is unethical. What if we just make a giant cannon? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll plug in here as well. Uh, Jill, once uh, you defeat Nemesis the final time, uh, she walks up to it with a magnum and fires round after round into it and uh, gives it uh, a, just a classic Resident Evil one-liner to finish him off. You want stars? I'll give you stars. How about the Gravedigger? I would say that's probably like one of the worst enemies, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's so huge and cumbersome to deal with, and you always encounter the Gravedigger, this gigantic worm, uh, in such a small, enclosed space. Like, the first time is in the Underground Passage, and you don't even have to fight it. You just need to activate the ladder by turning on the power down here, but... There's holes everywhere for the Grave Digger to come out and take a big chomp out of you. And mm-hmm. if you're not good with, you know, mobility or dodging um, or just good reflexes, you can easily die down there. And it can be really aggravating um, having to deal with that because you also, you know, you have the fixed camera as well. So you don't some you don't always see it coming out of the hole. And, you know, you might be running into it, trying to, you know, hit the switches, and it can be really annoying. Yeah, the camera angles here are some of the cruelest in the game. Yeah. And then the second time, you find it in a graveyard, and that one's a bit better, because you can, um, mm-hmm. uh, you can either go about it normal, by just, you know, shooting it down, a grenade launcher's really, really good, too, or you can electrocute it yeah. by it having um, it go into, like, the small puddle and hitting the, um, the lamppost to uh, electrocute it. Yeah, I wish I'd have done that. This guy killed me a few times here because I couldn't figure out the um, like the the electrification. Yeah, that was also really hard because camera angles as well. Namu, did you encounter the helicopter boss? Because I didn't. It only happens when you do. Uh, uh, I believe if you have, you know, depending on if Jill jumps or pushes Nemesis off of the bridge. Oh yeah, I pushed him off. Yeah, if you uh, jump, it takes you to the uh the factory like a different way and mm-hmm. you know you encounter him there and i think that's really only happens in that playthrough so there's a chance that you don't even have to worry about handling Nikolai um and doing the live selection that happens with that fight as well oh yeah what what's the choice that you get you can either negotiate with him or you can <laughs> return fire and uh kill him i think if you don't make a decision um I think if you don't make a decision, I think he uh, damages Jill so that uh, you'll already be injured when the fight happens. Oh, kind of like that that first nemesis fight. Yeah. Funnily enough, you can also kind of bypass this fight. The video I watched on YouTube of, well, that I tried to watch of this boss fight proper, they selected the return fire option with the rocket launcher equipped, and that, <laughs> that just instantly kills the helicopter in a cutscene. 
Oh, cool. Well, that's a, that's a fun little Easter that's egg. probably good for uh, speedrun yeah. tactics. So the story in this is kind of interesting. I know we touched upon this earlier with the uh, the title going to be Biohazard 1.9 slash 2.1. So this is where this really comes into play. This game kind of takes uh, place about a day or two before Resident Evil 2 and ends after the events of Resident Evil 2. So everything that's kind of happening in this game should be happening kind of around the same time. Oh, it's a yeah. pretty interesting concept. Here we see... Uh, Jill Valentine. She's returning from Resident Evil 1. Yeah, there's a... I think there's a memo that you can find that shows that, like, she tried to expose it and was shut down by Chief Irons, and so she's, uh, left stars. Mm-hmm. And Umbrella sent mercenaries, uh, into the city, uh, supposedly to help evacuate civilians. I mean, they're still mm-hmm. under the guise of the kindly pharmaceutical company slash weapons-making slash bioweapons. <laughs> right. So what we'll do is, for a story, is that I think we'll cover the five noteworthy developments like we did with RE1 and RE2. Yeah. Um, only because that kind of going into the story would kind of be long in the sense that this story is mostly lore right. um, and expanded universe things and not so much the standalone game itself. So I think it's just more important to kind of cover what happens in this game. Yeah, agreed. Uh, one of the... Big noteworthy developments, obviously, is the return of Jill Valentine, uh, Brad Vickers, and uh, Barry Burton. His appearance in this is, like, barely more than a cameo, really. Right. I think they honestly just included him because, again, last minute, like, oh, we know this guy. Yeah, and if you never played the first one, you would never know who that guy was and just assume, oh, this is probably just, you know, some other co-worker or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you don't even get a good look at his face. So, yeah, it... it... It's the kind of thing that, like, reads, like, if this was the only Resident Evil you played, you're like, wow, they really paid a weird amount of attention to this, the profile of that helicopter pilot. But uh, if you played <laughs> the first one, yeah, it's it's uh, like, hey, remember this dude? Mm-hmm. It kind of rewards you a little bit for playing the first two games. Yeah. And with Brad, unfortunately, we, we do notice a game uh, or a cutscene earlier on in the game where he's being attacked by zombies who actually managed to get a good little chunk out of him, you know? Yeah, so Brad's pretty much doomed from the start. Yeah, when I saw that scene, I was just like, wait, is he is he dead? Is he going to turn? Yeah. Sadly slash fortunately, he doesn't really <laughs> get that chance because he's murdered by Nemesis um, in a very iconic scene, actually. Yeah, it, it's right up there with like the first zombie in Resident Evil 1 mm-hmm. or the liquor in Resident Evil 2. Yeah, I think if you honestly just look on YouTube and just type in Resident Evil 3, that cutscene's probably going to come up. How's it happen, Hamilton? Give us the, the, the gross details. So you and Brad, I think, are outside. Brad is constantly freaking out and telling you that we're going to die, we're going to die. He kind of reminds me of uh, Bill Paxton's character in Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> no, he literally is like, game over, man, game over. I mean, he was yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much like that when you first see him in a bar. Hamming He's always just like, this place is going down. Everyone's <laughs> dying. 
We can't He's make it get out us, alive. Jim. He's going to get us. And at that point, Jill's just like, who is going to get us? And he can't really talk. Yeah. So the second time where you meet him with his death, I think you're in a courtyard. Yep. Yeah, he like grabs Brad by the mouth and then shoots the yeah. tentacle out like through the back of Brad's skull. Yeah. Yeah, Resident Evil 3 earned its M rating. Another important thing to note is that Jill in this game becomes infected with a T-virus uh, halfway through mm-hmm. um, and enters a coma. And your partner, Carlos... Uh, has to mix a vaccine to save her. This, I mean, this is played up in this game, but it really becomes only important in Resident Evil 5 and for kind of dumb right. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as we'll get around to in like six months or so. Yeah, it inexplicably turns her blonde, but, you know, we'll get there. But anyways, um, as for Barry, if you jump off the bridge during the dead uh, factory, then Barry will be the pilot uh, for the escape chopper. Yeah, because the uh, the helicopter that you escape in, if you push Nemesis off of the, uh, the the walkway, is, I guess, the helicopter that Nikolai fights you in. Mm-hmm. So um, you're kind of left high and dry without an escape route until Barry somewhat inexplicably shows up to uh, get you out. Mm-hmm. I thought what was really interesting was the direction that the team took of Brad in the later uh, remake of this game. I can't remember the yeah. events mm-hmm. of Resident Evil 2 in its entirety, so I don't remember if it's ever discussed how Marvin got bit in the original Resident Evil 2. But you see in remake re- Resident Evil 3, you see Marvin right before the events of Resident Evil 2 remake encountering Brad in the courtyard. And Brad, you know, right as he's turning into a zombie, he's like, you know, pleading for, you know, death or whatever from Marvin. And then he's the sole yeah. reason why Marvin. Is bit and I thought that was really interesting how they used Brad's character later on. I thought it was really really cool. Yeah, it's so tragic. That's a really great story beat. Mm-hmm. And then also, you, we don't see Brad ever again in this version, but in the remake, you know, you have the option of killing him as Carlos. Yeah, you actually see Brad's whole arc in the remake, whereas in this, it's kind of uh, an explanation for why he's an Easter egg zombie in the original Resident Evil Two. Yeah. So going right along to point uh, noteworthy point number two, a little bit more on Umbrella. So th- we learn, well, quite a few things about them, one of which is that they recruit private mercenaries, the UBCS. Umbrella Biohazard Countermeasure Service. Hmm. It's like, I bet you the U is Umbrella, but I can't remember any, any of the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> and those mercenaries are from death row inmates and political prisoners around the world. The opening cutscene shows a lot of these mercenaries getting uh, butchered in Raccoon City by zombies after having been sent in by Umbrella. Um, the named ones who we see are uh, Carlos, who uh, partners with Jill and is generally a good-hearted, if somewhat sleazy, guy. Mikhail, who is uh, their buddy who has been mortally wounded and ends up dying in a uh, heroic sacrifice to stop Nemesis. And Nikolai, who is one of the supervisors, uh, very sinister figures. It is kind of interesting that occasionally Umbrella, even as worst, hired some people who are who are decent. Yeah, Carlos is one of the good ones, more or less. Yeah, like he he doesn't know that Umbrella is evil. He's just he's doing this as a job because you know he's he's got to get by. Yeah, you know. There's two other characters uh, 
umbrella characters that you encounter, depending on the route that you take in the game. One is Murphy. Uh, in the I don't I don't remember like the pharmacy. I think that's what it was. It was a pharmacy. Yep. Mm-hmm. You encounter uh you can encounter Carlos encountering Murphy, who is just like Brad on the verge of turning, pleading for uh death mm-hmm. in uh, Carlos has to kill him, but depending on the route that you take, you might not even see that scene at all, and you actually encounter Nikolai there, and when you are controlling Carlos in the hospital, you can see Tyrell, who reprised his role in the remake, and had his uh, character developed even more, but you encounter Nikolai killing Tyrell at the end. Um, There's two different scenarios, depending on if you go to the basement first, or the fourth floor of the hospital first. Mm. Yeah, uh, Tyrell um, kind of uh, reveals to us Nikolai's other uh, ulterior motive. Nikolai as a supervisor is kind of eliminating loose ends in an effort to uh, make the most amount of money because he'll be the only supervisor who comes back alive to Umbrella. They they developed a system. I don't know if it quite works since they all pretty much die by the end of it, (laughs) but (laughs) they tried. I think. (laughs) And as we go through the games, we'll find out, obviously, more about Umbrella. But as far as the business is concerned, they actually did fund the uh, Raccoon City's infrastructure, Mm -hmm. including its main hospital and parks. Yeah. They did not plan for um, Raccoon City to be swamped with zombies. No, Uh, no. That was all all William Birkin. However, they also didn't particularly care because it did help their um, their tests. Yeah, they just found a way to exploit it for... Brace yourself, listeners, Resident Evil bingo card, <laughs> combat data. Yeah, because things like the uh, Deimos that we were talking about earlier, that's a flea that actually, um, it mutated from absorbing a lot of blood from zombies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how they get their data. They're just like, well, whatever, we lost the city. Let's see what we can do to get combat data. Yeah, what's what's the silver lining on this very, very, very grim cloud? Ha! <laughs> We also see some of their consumer products that's display in the pharmacy. One being Safe Sprint, and the other <laughs> being AquaCure. I love this so much. <laughs> uh, we also learned that Umbrella has been uh, experimenting with the zombies as uh, BOWs, right? But not just as a bio, uh, as a byproduct, but also they plan to sell the T virus to militaries um, as a way to infect POWs before returning them to enemies. Um, they're also trying to do one of two things. One. Uh, for superhuman experiments, which all failed, mm-hmm. or two, uh, to just have really strong bioweapons, aka the tyrants, but also those have a va- bad habit of getting very aggressive slash mutating whenever they um, they receive punishment. So right, right. most of them were also failures as well. But hey, Umbrella's trying. There's one that wasn't a failure, though. That's true. This one actually was... The Nemesis, or the Pursuer, was actually one of the few bioweapons that not only had the Nemesis A parasite, which apparently increases intelligence, right? right. Um, but it was also exposed to active combat, which is why it can use the various weapons that it does in the game. Yeah, and this is our uh, our third noteworthy development here, of course. Mm-hmm. Being the Nemesis. Yeah. It was definitely its most successful, slash, I think, really, its only... Real successful tyrant. Yeah, a bit ironic that we don't see Nemesis turn up ever again, eh? Yeah, because I'm 
I'm rolling through all the games in my head, and I can't remember one that was as well-trained as this one was. There's a lot of tyrants in the future games, but they're all more or less released, either because, you know, people crapping their pants and, you know, (laughs) stars is coming for them, so they have to release it, or they're released by accident. Yeah, I think the closest you get is the uh, the tyrant in Resident Evil 2, but it's not nearly as uh, targeted or useful. Yeah. It's like it doesn't have the, the critical thinking that Nemesis does. The critical thinking is, is the hard part, because I think with all of the virus um, variants, it, it destroys intelligence and uh, mm-hmm. higher functioning, which is why the zombies are basically the way they are. It's just because right. their intelligence has been... More or less annihilated. But the Nemesis, not so much. Hey, they managed to get a success with that. It was developed by Umbrella Europe in response to William Birkin's success. Yeah, a little, uh, like, interdepartmental rivalry. Yeah. I mean, as much as William Birkin was kind of a failure, he also was a complete success because his version of a tyrant was actually one of the strongest. Right. Our fourth noteworthy moment is uh, when Raccoon City is bombed. Yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, so this moment will pretty much, you know, put the kibosh on Raccoon City as a place. It's no longer going to exist and in a very horrific way. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the game, the um, U.S. government hits Raccoon City with a uh, tactical thermobaric strike. I had to look this up, mm-hmm. um, which is a type of aerosol or vacuum bomb, uh, which leads over 100,000 civilians dead, either through the infection of zombies or just because of the explosion. But they, they pretty yeah. much quote 100,000 lives. And yeah, in a very uh-huh. weird newscast that plays at the end of the game. Yeah. It refers to like the U.S. president and the federal council or something. It's a real <laughs> kind of localization snafu. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, the, the voice acting of this was still was still all right, but it's still kind yeah. of funny when you listen to it. Uh, yeah. along with the, the many grammatical errors in this game. Right. You know, they're still trying to get that right. But interestingly enough, why I said, why I pointed out the thermobaric strike, apparently the writer was inspired by Neon Genesis Evangelion mm-hmm. um, and wanted to end this game with a large, with something that had a large impact on the audience that would kill a large group of people, yeah. but also didn't want it to be a nuclear weapon. Um, so they came up with this giant mass-killing aerosol bomb. Yeah. Um, but it leads us to our fifth and final noteworthy uh, moment is the epilogues. Yeah. Uh, which outlines what's going on with uh, various uh, Resident Evil characters. Mm-hmm. So with Jill, um, you see pursuing Chris and uh, after leaving Raccoon City, but finds his apartment abandoned with only a bloodied knife left behind. Yep. And I don't know if this is actually followed up on in the in Resident Evil 5. Yeah, I don't remember either. It's It's been a minute since I played Resident Evil 5. Yeah. I played 5 not long ago, but I can't remember them ever referencing this. Hmm. And it's just, in that game, there's just flashbacks of Chris and Jill mm-hmm. uh, fighting Wesker and seeing old man Spencer. But I can't remember if this is ever referenced though i truly can't I love remember either old man spencer that's so good <laughs> if it weren't for those those uh those meddling kids he would have gotten away with it <laughs> mm-hmm. so for chris uh he discovers that claire has been searching for him but has been captured uh which is a reference to code veronica mm-hmm. so for barry 
Uh, Barry bids farewell to his wife and daughters, and we see him set out to aid his former stars colleagues, which is kind of not really, but sort of canon. He he does leave. We'll find out in the future game. He uh he goes on his own little adventure. Yeah, this is one of the less interesting of the uh, epilogues. There's just not a lot here. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like a lot of these epilogues just kind of lead to where they want a sequel to go, yeah. and it's so nebulous that they can just pretty much do whatever they want. But um, for Leon, he's blackmailed by a U.S. government agent due to his desire to protect Sherry Birkin. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah, this act might actually be a reference to how he ends up where he is in uh, Resident Evil 5, or Resident Evil 4, rather, uh, though the game had not been planned at this stage. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that this epilogue serves as an explanation for what's going on in Resident Evil 4, mm-hmm. even though, like, Resident Evil 4 would notoriously go through, like, three or four different prototypes before it ended up what it was. Or are they just kind of like, you know, I think we can work with this. Let's do it. Yeah, after the first three Resident Evil 4 prototypes failed, they dug up this epilogue and thought, yeah, that'll do. Right. Just like, <laughs> like I'm burned out. This this fine. Works. This works. He's, he's government now. This is great. So for Claire... She leaves Leon and Sherry to pursue Chris in Europe. A lot of pursuing mm-hmm. going on. Sherry uh, is now in the custody of the U.S. government and hoping that she'll see Claire again someday. Yeah, her epilogue is the saddest. I actually don't know if she does. I, at- as far from where, I don't think she even sees Claire again. Because the next time you see Sherry is in Resident Evil 6, right? Yeah. And she's already an adult by then. And that's her first time seeing Leon since... Resident Evil 2, so... Yeah. And she's a little bit older, and she's in the company of someone else, who will be a great plot point when we get there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, For Ada, uh, she looks over her scar from from the Raccoon City incident, and she decides to abandon the name Ada Wong, which is, like, what? This will be heavily retconned in uh, Resident Evil 4. Yeah, she doesn't abandon that name. I mean, we get from the start that that's probably not her real name, because she's a quintuple agent i don't know if that's even a term but she is this is interesting because it's the first uh, official confirmation from capcom that ada survived the raccoon city incident like it it was pretty obvious at the end of resident evil 2 that it was her in the shadows but um you know this is the first time that that they say explicitly that she's uh she's still around last but not least we have hunk who chats with a helicopter pilot and imagines himself to be death itself because you know that's, uh, that, that's Hunk. Gotta love Hunk. Uh, he's also seen without his mask. So there you go. One of the things that I like about this, uh, this Hunk epilogue is that, um, I don't think Hunk would ever really reappear in a Resident Evil game after this point until the, uh, the remakes, which of course are just a retelling of, uh, of the early Resident Evils. But there were plans to have Hunk go on to greater things. Um, at some point, there was uh, one of Resident Evil's many on-a-boat incidents where uh, Hunk would have been fighting zombies while trying to transport his T-virus sample from uh, Raccoon City to Umbrella Headquarters. We do hear about Hunk, uh, at least if I remember correctly, one more time in Code Veronica. No kidding. Yeah, it's a report, though, hmm. um, that you come across uh, in... The mansion, I believe. Okay. And I can't remember the uh, contents of the report, but it's called Hunk Report. And I think it's just uh, probably like a retelling of what he's doing around the same time. But he is referenced in Code Veronica. Oh, Hmm. cool. Cool find. I totally forgot about that. 
Spencer, what did you think about this game? I liked it quite a bit, but not as much as Resident Evil 2. Sure. Mm-hmm. I had played RE2 before. This was my first time ever playing 3. So I was excited to engage with the Nemesis mechanic, and I did like that. I think my opinions on a lot of the subsystems kind of bled through when we talked about each individual one. I do have some qualms with the overall level design of this. Mm -hmm. I really liked the Spencer Mansion and the police station. I thought those had a really nice sense of place. And there are individual locations you get confined to in this that I like, but a large section of the game takes place in the streets of Raccoon City. Yeah. And I didn't enjoy that as much. I thought that was a little less interesting. Additionally, I tended to get lost. Uh, There were sections where I would come across an item that I would need later. And then when it came time for when I got the, you know, whatever item I needed to go back and acquire the one I had found before, I had a very hard time remembering and relocating where I had seen those objects before. And that's not a problem I really ran into in one or two. Because each section of those locations felt very distinct and memorable. So I always knew exactly where to go back to where I needed to go. Yeah, the streets kind of loop around on themselves a lot in this game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose you could argue that that's more in the style survival horror because it forces you to spend more time navigating, which is always a dangerous proposition because that results in you typically having to burn through ammo or health. Mm -hmm. But it felt a lot less fun to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And you don't gain much in the way of freedom from the uh, the Raccoon City streets, because even though it presents itself as being pretty open, like debris and damage from the zombie outbreak blocks off a lot of paths. So it is all really surprisingly uh, like confined and almost just linear. Yeah, it's it's still basically hallways. Yeah, so that was a bummer for me that a big section of that was uninteresting. And I got frustrated by the dodge mechanic. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, I think it's very good. I think I liked it maybe a little more than one even. I got extremely frustrated with one by the end of it. uh, And I felt a lot less frustrated by this. Maybe part of that was just proficiency. We've been playing a lot of Resident Evil now. So I just had a little, you know, easier time in general because I'm not I don't have to reacclimate to the tank controls or anything every time I pick one of these up now. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I like this a lot. Uh, I would certainly recommend it. If you're just jumping into the franchise for the first time, I'd still probably recommend two. But this is worth this is worth visiting. Um, just if for nothing else to engage with Nemesis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Hamilton? So for me, it's kind of interesting because we touched upon this a little bit earlier. I I do like this game. I also have to um, to echo kind of not as much as Resident Evil Two. But I also wasn't bored with this game. Um, I was really excited to play this game too because this is one of the few that I had never been able to touch. Kind of like Spencer, I'm also going to echo that I really did like the Nemesis feel. I kind of liked how tense it was. The tension part I actually kind of enjoyed a little bit more than Resident Evil 2, which is weird. Because uh, I, I know I just said I didn't like the game as much as I like Resident Evil 2, and that's the thing. Right. The portions of tension I liked more. The game as a whole, not necessarily. Um, I thought that Resident Evil 2 was just better made... It did have that sense of claustrophobia a bit more. On the other hand, this game has more ammo. <laughs> the other game does not. And I burn through ammo. I don't try to. I've gotten better at it. As Spencer said, my proficiency is getting up, so I'm able to dodge a bit better and kind of know, know what fights to go into, which fights not to with limited ammo. 
But I still always appreciate having more ammo or being able to craft it. I don't know. Kind of my yeah. thing. There's nothing super special about it, I'll say, besides Nemesis, but there's nothing super bad about it that I can really say either. Nothing that terribly frustrated me besides maybe the Hunters. Yeah. So, hey, if you want to try it, and if you are able to pick it up somehow, apparently it's a little bit easier now to do so, give it a try. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Chris? I uh, I really love this game. It's, uh, you know, if we were assigning it a rating, maybe like a 9 out of 10, it's like it doesn't quite crack into my Resident Evil Top 3. And I think I might like the remake of it slightly more, but, uh, you know, the... The jury's still out on that, so maybe we'll revisit that question when we get around to it. But um, I just, I think everything really comes together to make a a really tight, compelling package here. I like the epic scale of uh, moving through the Raccoon City streets and seeing more of the city. Like getting to to hang out at like the hospital and the newspaper office, um, the power plant, like all kinds of strange places that you wander into in this. Getting to revisit the RPD. Uh, shortly before the events of Resident Evil 2 is pretty cool. It's, you know, it's very truncated. It's only a small portion of it, but it's neat to see its rooms repurposed. And as a person who's generally more engaged with, like, the the systems and mechanics of a game than the story, I found this really compelling. Like, every run of this feels pretty different. As far as things that I didn't like, the dodge roll just doesn't work. Um, And I do miss there being multiple campaigns, Otherwise, um, Nemesis remains one of the single best things that Capcom has ever done with this franchise and remains scary and thrilling to fight 20 years after the game came out. So good on you, Capcom. Uh, I know that there's a lot of uh, hemming and hawing about this being the third numbered series entry, but I think it lives up to the previous two. How about you, Namu? What did you think of this? Um, With this game coming out in... uh late 90s has been 20 plus years and i still find this game quite horrifying at times yeah and i really enjoy it i prefer this over the remake i'm not a fan of the remake i think the remake uh Mm -hmm. took out a lot of really good portions from this um i think the middle part of the game when you go to the clock tower i think that's just when it gets like really really good for me i like the change uh, in the environment, you know, you've already been to the streets of Raccoon and you've been to the police department mm-hmm. in uh, RE2. So seeing this new place uh, going to this courtyard, you know, I thought it was really, really cool. And just the, the boss fight that takes place there, I find that really entertaining. Switching yeah. to Carlos to save Jill's life. You can feel the urgency of trying to hurry up and get through the hospital. Encountering uh, the hunters again, the hunter betas, I mean seeing them again and then also the spiders again you know i have arachnophobia so coming across these spiders again (laughs) when i thought i had to deal with them before um anymore is you know it's quite horrifying this section of the game and yeah just that whole part is is my favorite and um you know like i said even with this being 20 plus years after its release it still ranks really really high as just a favorite you know really, really nostalgic for me just to think about Resident Evil 3. Mm-hmm. I think uh, they, despite, I guess, the issues they had with uh, this in the beginning, I think they did a really great job. And I just wish it was a bit longer. It's not a, it's a really, really quick game compared to the others. And, you know, um, I do wish that there would have been a little bit more. It didn't have to be like the scenarios with RE2, um, but just maybe 
this this section with Carlos maybe a, bit, a little bit longer. Maybe you get to control him in a different area, like they kind of did with the remake. I don't know. Um, yeah, there's pros and cons with that. But uh, yeah, even to this day, I still really, really enjoy this game. Well, that's all we have for Resident Evil 3. We hope you've enjoyed listening and encourage you to come back next time for Resident Evil Code Veronica. In the interim, consider backing us at patreon.com franchisefestival where you'll get access to a bonus episode each month and even have the chance to vote on future episode topics. If you have any suggestions, you can also drop us a line on Twitter using the handle at franchise underscore fest or email us at franchisefestival at gmail.com. But most importantly, where can listeners find you, Namu? Um, I'm mainly on uh, Twitch and uh, Twitter. And my Twitch is twitch.tv slash supernamu. And my Twitter is twitter.com slash super underscore namu. You can find me in those places most out of all other platforms. I will add my personal recommendation to this. Uh, Namu streams are great. Uh, there's uh, a whole lot of variety there. And um, I think recently uh, I've seen you play what, like, Phoenix Wright and um, Fortnite. Uh, truth be told, that stream was my introduction to Fortnite. I had never seen it before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Good chat. Uh, listeners, I strongly recommend check out Supernamu on Twitch. As for us, we've been your hosts, Chris. Spencer. Hamilton. And our special guest. Namu. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>